The liberal assumption today is that humanity has progressed. We've evolved. We're more sophisticated than in years gone by. Moderns are more enlightened than their ancient counterparts. But I hate to tell you it's not true. It's certainly erroneous when it comes to how we view sex. The idea of sexual intimacy as nothing more than a biological function, as simply a physical act, is actually a modern idea. The ancients viewed sex in a much more sophisticated and even spiritual way. They understood its impact on the human psyche and gave it higher value. They considered sexual intimacy as holy and as sacred. Even the pagan cults saw sex as an act of worship. To engage in sexual intimacy was to become one with your partner, and it was to invite the gods to participate with their blessing. This is why nearly all of the pagan temples employed sex workers, prostitutes called priestesses, who engaged in sex as a religious ritual. The act of sex was seen as a spiritual experience. You became one with the other person and with their God. And this is why our God saw idolatry in sexual terms. When an Israelite worshipped an idol, Yahweh considered it adultery and a betrayal to him. That person was being unfaithful. Infidelity and idolatry went hand in hand. And this is the background to the story of Hosea. To illustrate Israel's spiritual betrayal of the true God, Yahweh had the prophet Hosea marry a prostitute. As his wife Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, Israel had ignored its vows to God and had gone to bed with idols. Gomer, like many sex workers today, ended up a human slave. In fact, she was being sold in the market when Hosea heard. He rushed in. He made the highest bid. Then he covered her nakedness and ushered her home. And according to the custom of the day, this made Hosea's wife, Gomer, his slave. His wife became his servant. The prophet could now do to her as he pleased. I read of a woman in Georgetown, Guyana, who found her husband in bed with another woman. Her husband physically attacked her. She ended up taking him to court. The judge punished the man by sentencing him to be his wife's slave for two weeks. He told her, for two weeks your husband is at your beck and call. He is your slave. Anything you want him to do, he has to do. Husbands, wives, what would you do to your spouse if he or she was made your slave for two weeks? Would you make them pay you back for the way they've been treating you lately? What form of slow, painful torture would you devise? How would you seek to make their life miserable? I've heard forgiveness defined as having the ability to repay a hurt, yet foregoing my right to do so. This was the situation with Hosea and Gomer. She was his slave now. He could do to her whatever he pleased, and guess what Hosea did? He forgave her. He forgave her. True forgiveness is having it within your power to pay someone back for the evil they've done and instead show them mercy. One author defines it, forgiveness is surrendering my right to hurt you for hurting me. If you haven't discovered it yet, the biggest key to a successful marriage is learning to bury the hatchet. Husbands and wives should learn to forgive. It's been said every marriage is made up of two sinners. A good marriage is made up of two forgivers. Understand, next to the cross of Jesus, nowhere in Scripture is God's forgiveness displayed more vividly than in the story of Hosea. In these final eight chapters, God is going to bring judgment on the nation Israel. But realize, it is coming from the mouth of the prophet Hosea. And the Israelites knew his story. He stood for forgiveness. Because of the man who was preaching, the people understood God's motivation. It was clear to Israel that it was God's intention to convict them of their sin, not condemn them for their sin. 
And so he begins in chapter 7. God says, When I would have healed Israel, and I wish this stood out in bold print, God would have healed. He wanted to heal. God's desire was to comfort, not cripple. It was to justify, not judge. But a skilled doctor has to have a stilled patient. The patient has to cooperate with the doctor. And this is what Israel refused to do. They wouldn't repent. He says, Then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered, and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud. A thief comes in. A band of robbers takes spoil outside. God would have healed Israel if they'd shown the slightest urge to confess and to turn from their sin. Instead, the people's sin came out of the closet. They sinned brazenly and openly and unashamedly. And I'm afraid this has happened in post-Christian America. People today are no more wicked than they've ever been. But at one time, our society maintained a moral consensus. Our social mores suppressed certain sins but no longer. Any kind of moral consensus we once had has been replaced by a public tolerance of anything and everything. We care more about the sinner's feelings than preserving society's righteousness. This has allowed every form of perversity to come out of the closet. It's polluting our culture. The lifeblood of our society, the arts and the media are now infected. and People are exposed to a steady diet of wickedness. God would have healed our nation if we would repent. He says in verse 2, For they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them. They are before my face. It's interesting that God's own people had forgotten Him. And it's surprisingly easy to do. We get caught up in the swirl of this world. The pressing consideration drowns out the eternal consideration. Tragically, Israel had forgotten God. Verse 3, they made a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. You know, when a nation refuses to be ruled by God, they destine themselves to be ruled by man. Thus, the king becomes glad. You know, for 250 years, America was protected by our Pledge of Allegiance. One nation under God. You know, that one line in the pledge puts everybody else in their place. That means the president, the judiciary, the Congress all answer to God. We're one nation under God. But when God is pushed to the fringes, powerful men then, and their lies then take over. This is why kings are glad with their wickedness. In the rest of chapter 7 now, the prophet Hosea, he uses four analogies to describe the nation Israel. He talks about a heated oven, a cake unturned, a silly dove, and a deceitful bow. Verse 4, they are all adulterers like an oven heated by a baker. He ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is, le un until it is leavened. In the day of our king, princes have made him sick, inflamed with wine. He stretches out his hand with scoffers. They prepare their heat like an oven while they lie in wait. Their baker sleeps all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. They are all hot like an oven and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None among them calls upon me. The heated oven was an idiom for unbridled lust. Selfish, sensual desires that burn out of control. Here he talks about the baker's oven. It was actually a brick fireplace. It was heated with wood or grass. The baker would stoke the fire and then he would cook on top of the fireplace. When the baker went to bed and no longer used his oven, of course, the fires would die out. But Israel is described as a fire that fuels itself. Even when the baker goes betty by, the oven still burns hot. The sinful appetites of the people burn out of control. And this was the problem with lust and vice. It burns beyond its boundaries. It's a lust that's never satisfied. It fuels itself. 
whether it's a lust for power or money or sex or alcohol or fame or whatever it might be, lust is a monster. And each time you feed it, its appetite increases. Lust requires increasing degrees of titillation. Israel had become a self-stoking oven. It wouldn't die out on its own. Notice Hosea specifically mentions Israel's kings. He writes, all their kings have fallen. From 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings, we learn that of the 19 kings who reigned in the northern kingdom of Israel, all 19 were wicked before the Lord. That means throughout their 200 years of existence, nine dynasties ruled over Israel, and each one was wicked. It was evil. Intrigue and sabotage and assassination were headlines in Israel. God doesn't promise to bless these northern kings as he promised to bless the descendants of David in the south. Notice too, Hosea mentions the kings of Israel were addicted to wine. Alcohol was a problem. John Fielding once referred to alcohol as, and I quote, the liquid fire by which men drink their hell beforehand. And you know, if you've ever been linked to an alcoholic, if you've ever had to live with an alcoholic, you won't consider Fielding's words an exaggeration. Alcohol numbs a body, clouds a mind, desensitizes a spirit. This is why Solomon writes in Proverbs 31, It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert justice. And for the same reasons it's off-limits to kings, it should also be off-limits to pastors. Verse 8, Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Generally speaking, God is not into mixtures. Remember Deuteronomy 22, it instructed Israel, You shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown in the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. He says, You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. He's just saying, God is not into mixtures. He's not into mixing stuff. In the wilderness, it was the mixed multitude that kept wanting to retreat to Egypt rather than trust in the Lord. And of course, all this gets applied to our lives in 2 Corinthians 6, where Paul draws on the prohibition not to plow with an ox and a donkey in the same harness. He uses the illustration to warn us against being yoked with an unbeliever. Witness to non-Christians, certainly. Interact with them as you look for an open door to share the gospel. But don't create ties with an unbeliever that can't be vacated. Develop bonds with an unbeliever. Share in their destiny, and you set yourself up for trouble. God can't judge the unbeliever without you getting caught in friendly fire. Be an influence on unbelievers, but don't get entangled. Again, God is against mixtures. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Come out from among them and be separate says the Lord. Don't become bound to the unbeliever in such a way that will force you to make concessions to their values. You can stay free and live totally for the Lord. That's the burning oven. The second idiom he uses to describe an unrepentant Israel is Ephraim is a cake unturned. Now across the Middle East, Bedouins, they would make little pancakes on a hot griddle. They'd cook one side and then they'd flip it over. You had to make sure you flipped it over, or it would char on one side and be gooey on the other side. Israel, he says, was like a pancake that was not flipped. In other words, she kept repeating the same mistakes. She never turned from her evil. She never changed. She kept following in the sin of Jeroboam, despite God's constant warnings. You know, if you're a person who's resistant to change, if you are a creature of habit, if you're set in your ways, if it's always business as usual, did you know you're going to struggle in the Christian life? For too many of us, it's come weal, come woe, my status is quo. If that's you, you're going to have problems. This is an attitude that's deadly. Recall the words of a dying church, the last words of a dying church. We've always done it that way. Following God necessitates change. You know, as I grow in Christ, I'm exposed to new truth. I'm convicted of old habits. 
This is why Christian maturity requires maintaining an attitude of repentance, a willingness to change, a willingness to flip the cake over from time to time. The Holy Spirit is the author of new life. This means to walk in the Spirit, we've got to be flexible. It's been said, when you're through changing, you're through. It's true, the Christian life is a process of constant change. Hosea says in verse 9, aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him, yet he does not know it. In essence, it's been a long time since Israel had looked in the mirror and evaluated her condition. She's got some gray hairs she's never noticed before. He says, and the pride of Israel testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. At the time Hosea's writing, Assyria was already prepared to attack Israel. Border skirmishes, some espionage had weakened Israel's resistance. God's people should have repented, but they were oblivious. They needed to look in the mirror. Verse 11, Ephraim also is like a silly dove. Without sense, they call to Egypt, then they go to Assyria. Now remember, Ephraim was the strongest tribe in the northern kingdom. So often the nation went by that name, Ephraim. And here it's described by the third idiom, a silly dove. There is an eastern proverb that says, there is nothing more simple than a dove. Doves are dumb. They get confused by the noises around them. They fly to and fro because they're uncertain of the voices to trust. And such was Israel. Israel was flighty. Israel was fickle rather than faithful. Like a dove, they were busy flying back and forth from Nineveh in Assyria to Memphis in Egypt. They tried to ally themselves with the superpowers of their day. They would trust Egypt for a while. Then they would trust Assyria for a while rather than trust in the eternal superpower. All superpowers come and go except one. That's God. That's who we need to trust in. He says, wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. The dumb doves will be caught in God's snare. He says, woe to them. For they have fled from me, destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. They assembled together for grain and new wine. They rebelled against me. Oh, they offered their obligatory sacrifices, their grain and their new wine, but their heart was far from God. God listens to our heart. Verse 15. Though I discipline and strengthen their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not to the Most High. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword for the cursings of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. And here's the fourth idiom that describes Israel. A treacherous bow, or literally a warped bow. Israel was a bow incapable of shooting straight. Reminds me of the afternoon my son Zach, he came home with a BB gun. He bought off a friend of his for 15 bucks. I hated to tell him he'd gotten ripped off, but he had. I made Zach look down the barrel of that gun. It was as wavy as a piece of taffy. At least he was smart enough to to have negotiated a money-back guarantee. That was his saving grace. But this was Israel. Her barrel was bent. Her bow was warped. It wouldn't have shot straight if John Wayne had been pulling the trigger. And this is the problem with humanity. This is the problem with unregenerate people. Humans are governed by a sin nature. You see, even when we try to do right, our aim is off. We're we're a treacherous bow. We're a warped barrel. And there's no way to fix a warp barrel. You know what you do with, with a warp barrel? You replace it. And this is what Jesus has done in us. He cuts out that sin nature, and he replaces it with a new nature, one that loves him, one that loves others. So Israel was a burning oven. 
Israel was a silly dove. Israel was a warped barrel. Israel was, what was the other one? Anybody know? A treacherous bow. A cake unturned. There it is. Chapter 8. Set the trumpet to your mouth. The trumpet was the shofar. It was the ram's horn. It was used to sound the alarm. Hosea is saying, alert the nation to battle. The the voracious Assyrians are coming to invade your land. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. The he here was the famous general Shalmanazir. And like an eagle diving on its prey, Assyria is going to swoop down upon the city, the capital of Samaria. He says, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. This sounds eerily like the words of Jesus in the last days when many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord. But you remember what Jesus, how Jesus will respond, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, if I wanted tickets to the Braves opening game, if I wanted to tour the new stadium up there, and I told the cashier, hey, I know Freddie Freeman. How about some tickets? That wouldn't get me very far. The reason is that Freddie Freeman doesn't know me. And likewise, the question that decides your ticket to heaven is not, do you know the Lord? It's, does the Lord know you? Here Israel shouted, my God, we know you. But in their heart, they had rejected the good. He says, they set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves, that they might be cut off. Again, the northern kingdom was born when Jeroboam rebelled against Judah in the south. He set up a rival kingdom with a rival religion. They established kings that God never sanctioned. They used their silver and gold to make idols that God had to eventually cut off. He says, your calf is rejected, O Samaria. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made, and it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. The calf of Samaria was part of Jeroboam's rival religion. You remember he set up two golden calves in the north and in the south of Israel, in Dan and in Bethel. It was supposedly the worship of Yahweh, but not in the way that God had prescribed. In essence, it was a worship of convenience. Rather than travel to the temple in Jerusalem and present their sacrifices to the Levitical priests as God had commanded, Jeroboam established a local alternative. His religion was complete with an altar, with sacrifices, with priesthood. It was a copycat religion of that in the south. But it was not sanctioned by God. And though Jeroboam thought it was worshiping God, in reality, God interpreted it as idolatry. And we need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake because it's easy for us to tailor make a religion of convenience. We come to church when it's convenient. We serve when it's convenient for us. We give when it's convenient. We witness only when it's convenient. It seems that some people who come to church and get involved, they do so only when there's nothing else they'd rather do. Where's the commitment? Where's the sacrifice? Paul tells us in Romans 12 verse 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Our whole lives should be a sacrifice to God. Serving God should be our reasonable, logical service. Yet Israel manufactured a religion of convenience, not sacrifice. Verse 7 says, They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. And that is exactly what has happened in America. 
In the 1960s and 70s, we sowed the seeds of relativism and humanism. Now today, we're reaping a whirlwind of social anarchy and moral bankruptcy. It's ironic, the generation that advocated free love and sex has now a skyrocketing divorce rate. You reap what you sow. In fact, sometimes you reap more than you sow. You plant a kernel of corn, but what do you reap? You reap an ear of corn. You sow to the wind, but you reap the whirlwind. Often the wind creates the multiplication of the harvest. The effect is amplified. He goes on, the stalk has no bud, it shall never produce meal. If it should produce, aliens would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the Gentiles like a vessel in which is no pleasure. Now later, the Babylonians are going to come and defeat the southern kingdom of Judah. And the policy of the Babylonians was to resettle their conquered foes back in Babylon. But the Assyrians had a different policy for the people they conquered. They would scatter the defeated people among the nations. And this is why Hosea here is telling the ten northern tribes that they're about to be swallowed up. They're about to be scattered among the Gentiles. Verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey alone by itself. Ephraim has hired lovers. God saw Israel's peace treaty with Assyria as a betrayal of him. Again, it was an adultery in God's eyes. It was infidelity to God. Yes, though they have hired among the nations, now I will gather them. And they shall sorrow a little because of the burden of the king of princes. Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. God gave them his law, his word, and yet they considered it a strange thing. You know, it's sad to go to a church where no one brings their Bible. Where God's word is like a UFO. It's an unidentified object. It's a strange thing. As Hosea says here, there are great things in the Bible. And yet, sadly, there are still some Christians who don't even have a clue. He says, for the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Oh, they're religious. They make their obligatory sacrifices, but it doesn't come from their hearts. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. They'll end where it all began in Egypt. Eventually God's people will be taken back to Egypt. And this happened to Judah in the days of Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. You remember they went back, some of them went back to Egypt. Verse 14, for Israel has forgotten his maker. What a sad pronouncement. When you forget your maker, when the thing made forgets its maker. And has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities, and it shall devour his palaces. Chapter 9 Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. Apparently, Israel had enjoyed a season of prosperity prior to God's punishment. Hosea says they loved the harvest. They spent more time at the threshing floor counting their money than on the temple floor seeking their God. Yet in the end, their prosperity won't feed them. Riches will fail. God will bring judgment on Israel. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and shall eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord." What will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. 
Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. When we go to Israel, the ruins of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, the ruins of Samaria are off limits. Today, Samaria is near Ramallah in the West Bank. Tensions are too high for tourists to visit. But the area of Samaria was a beautiful place. It had one of the most magnificent views in all the region. From the mountains of Samaria, you can see westward to the Mediterranean Sea. You can see the opposite direction across the Jordan Valley. You can see north to Mount Hermon and then south to Jerusalem. It's no surprise the kings of Israel made Samaria their capital. But Samaria is also a sad place to visit today because all you see there is ruins and devastation that were caused by the people's sin. God brought judgment on the capital of Samaria into the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways. Enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Israel knew God's judgments were upon them. Israel knows, he says, but they listen to the false prophets rather than the faithful watchmen, men like Hosea. And this is what will happen again in the end times. When God pours out His judgment on the earth, the world's scholars, the experts, will suddenly appear as fools. They'll suffer an insanity brought on by their sin. And in verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. You know, to find grapes in the desert or to find early figs is an unanticipated blessing. And there was a time when Israel brought God great pleasure, unanticipated pleasure. He says, but they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. Baal Peor was a notorious site. It was a site of Israel's seduction. It was set up by Balaam, if you remember the story, Numbers 25. Israel yielded to the lusts of women and went to bed with idols and those women who worshipped them. The story, it turns out, was a preview of Israel's idolatrous future. He says, as for Ephraim... Their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. A once fruitful Israel will become barren. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre, planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Ephraim, a formerly pleasant place, will become a slaughterhouse. The inhabitants of the northern kingdom will be butchered by the coming Assyrian army. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. Verse 15, all their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. There's some heavy words there. Wow. God says in Gilgal, he hated the Israelites. He's driven them from his house. Why? Because I love them no more, he says. That's interesting. In Jeremiah 31, verse 13, the Lord tells all the families of Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Yet here he says that he no longer loves Israel. What's the deal? Notice in Jeremiah, the word love is a noun. It's an object. His love is everlasting. It never wavers. It stays constant. God will always love us. Think about it. God even loves all the inhabitants in hell. He does, doesn't He? God still loves. Everybody in hell, God loves. 
God's heart is for us. But here in Hosea, the word love is a verb. It shows action. He's basically saying God will treat Israel. He'll no longer treat Israel to his love. Now put these two concepts together. And what is God saying? It becomes clear to us. God does love Israel. He always has. He always will. But because of the people's sin, there comes a point when God can no longer show his love. God loves everybody. But ultimately, if you refuse to embrace his son Jesus, God stops extending that love. See the difference? When God says, I love them no more, it's one in a string of heavy statements that God makes here in Hosea. Hosea 4 verse 17 is another such verse. It says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. It's an ominous thing to hear from God. Just leave him alone. Add to that Hosea 5 verse 6. He has withdrawn himself from them. I mean, these are dire verses. But when you read these verses, don't think that God ever gives up on his people. God never gives up on his people, but he does at times give his people over to their choices. In essence, God is saying, if you want to serve idols, then let them save you. God never stopped loving his people and longing for his people. But he does leave them to their gods of choice. If they want to rebel against him, if they want to follow other gods, he lets them. The last two verses in chapter 9 sum up what had happened to Israel. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yet were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him and they shall be wanderers among the nations. This is what will happen to Ephraim, to the northern kingdom, to the northern ten tribes. The Assyrians will destroy them and God will scatter them across the globe. They'll be wanderers among the nations. In fact, this expression, the wandering Jew, has now been used for the last 2,700 years. It's an official English phrase, a wandering Jew. For 27 centuries, scattered homeless Hebrews have wandered the globe without a nation of their own. In the Charles Dickens novel, Bleak House, an orphan Jewish boy is told by a policeman to stop loitering and move on. The boy replies with tears in his eyes, I'm always a moving on, sir. I've been moving on since the day I was born. Where can I possibly move on to, sir? The callous constable, he replies, my instructions don't address that question. I've been told you're to move on, and I've told you 500 times. Over the centuries, on occasion, the Jewish people thought they'd found a home, only to have the constable of prejudice uproot them and send them on their way somewhere else. How they survived through the centuries is a miracle. It's nothing short of the hand of God. Yet though it seemed that God had forsaken them, He hadn't. God hadn't given up on them. The Lord was working to ensure their survival. And now, today, He has provided a permanent home. The modern state of Israel is finally a place where the Jews can move on to. Even today, God has not given up on Israel. One day, God will rename them Ami rather than Lo Ami. You remember? Hosea named his last child Lo Ami, or Not My People, in the place where they were named Not My People. God will rename them Ami, or My People, again. And God has. We've seen it happen in our day. Which leads us to a more where you live kind of question. Has God ever given up on you? And I'm sure the answer to that question is no. God is faithful. God has and will never give up on us. In fact, when God 
gives up on you and your quirky habits and your insensitivities and your shortcomings and your failures and your sins, then you can give up on your spouse who has those same kind of quirky habits. And you can give up on your son and your friend and your fellow believer and your co-worker and your neighbor. When God gives up on you, then you can give up on them. Until then, there's a lot that can be worked out, but we should never walk out. We should be faithful to the people around us just as God is faithful to us. Well, chapter 10 begins. Israel empties his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. Notice the dangers of a divided heart. Israel of old tried to worship both their gold and their God, but they couldn't. You know, Jesus told us that no man can serve two masters. You know, often the blessings control more of our time and our attention than the blessers, than the blesser. Sometimes we get so focused on the blessings God gives us that we forget God. That's my point. This shouldn't be. You know, when the blessings distract us from the blesser, God often removes the blessings. That's what he promises to do here when he says, I'm going to break down their altars. For now they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? In the final days of the northern kingdom, the kings were just puppets of Assyria anyway. And so Hosea asks, even if they had a king, what would he be able to do for us? Assyria is ruling. They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. Hemlock was a poisonous plant. The worst thing for a farmer to have happen to him is to see hemlock sprouting up in his fields between his rows of fruit and grain. And Likewise, God's judgment is going to sprout up in Israel. Verse 5 the inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. Beth-Avon was a satirical name for Bethel. Bethel, of course, means house of God. It received its name in Genesis chapter 28. It was there that Jacob saw the ladder reaching into the heavens, and he had his encounter with God. The place was formerly known as Luz, but Jacob renamed the place House of God or Bethel. Thus, when King Jeroboam erected the golden calves, he placed one in Bethel. This meant in Israel, the house of God had become a center for idolatry. Here, Hosea refers to the city not as Bethel, house of God, but as Beth Haven or house of emptiness. How appropriate for a center of idolatry. And when the altar at Bethel is destroyed by Assyria, the people are going to mourn, he says. The priests are going to shriek. For the, priest, for the people, the idolatrous altar was a place of memories. It was where they had brought their sacrifices. It's where their kids were dedicated. It's where they had met their friends. To the priest, it was their livelihood, their profession. But God is taking it away. This idolatrous altar from the priest and from the people. The idol shall also be carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. The name Jerob is also a play on words. The Assyrian king was Shalmanazir, not Jerob, but Jerob means deliverer. It's ironic that the person the Jews trusted to deliver them in the end is the one who will conquer them and take their golden calf. Verse 7, As for Samaria... Her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Does that language ring a bell? In Revelation 6, this is what the desperate cries of the men will scream in the great tribulation during God's final judgments on the earth. 
They'll say to the rocks and to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? Verse 9, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood. The battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity did not overtake them. This reference to Gibeah takes you back to Judges chapters 19 and 20. Remember the tribes of Israel rose up in response to a terrible evil that had been done by the men of Gibeah. The tribes wanted to rid the land of such evil, and yet there was still iniquity in Israel. Israel tried to rid itself of the sin, but God says in verse 10, When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Again, the two transgressions refer to the two idolatrous calves in Bethel and in Dan. He says, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. Now, the job of grinding the grain at the threshing floor was always an easier job than plowing hardened fields. If Israel had been obedient to God and had plowed her sin under, she would be reaping now. Instead, she's still plowing. In other words, she's still starting over. And I think this sums up a lot of Christians' experience. Before we take shortcuts, it's because we take shortcuts, It's because we try to do things our own way, we find ourselves constantly having to start over. Rather than going ahead and plowing up the ground and bearing fruit. Ephraim was like an ox that relished threshing out the grain and working the harvest, but God fitted her for the plow to do the work that he really wanted to do. You can't enjoy the harvest without plowing the fields, that's what he's saying. Which brings us to a very famous verse, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. And break up the fallow ground is still God's word to us tonight. We need to put the plow of repentance to the stubborn, calloused areas of our life. Areas of our life we know need to be changed. We need to turn over the hard places until they become soft and fertile. Then God will plant the seed of His Word in our hearts and He'll rain down righteousness upon us. Understand, there can be no real reconciliation between God or man if we're not willing to do the work of repentance. Several years ago, I borrowed my dad's rototiller plant some grass in my backyard. I'm not kidding. Two years later, I could see the areas where I had tilled under the ground and the areas where I had just thrown the seed out on the hardened ground. It was the patches where I had worked the ground, where I had plowed it under. These were the patches with the strongest stand of grass. And repentance is like tilling your yard. It's backbreaking. It's time-consuming. It's pride-punishing work. But it's worth it. It's necessary. Too often we make superficial confessions. Followed by a plea for a pardon. Rather than taking the time. Making the effort of repentance. To really discover why I tend to fall in that temptation in the first place. Have you asked yourself. What foothold does Satan have in my life. Why this keeps reoccurring. What weakness. What character flaw. Is he exploiting in me? Why am I not trusting God? At what level am I not trusting him? Why am I relying on myself here? See, this is the work of repentance. This is the work of tilling over the ground over and over until it becomes soft, until it becomes fertile, until it can grab the seed and allow the seed to take root. To break up my fallow ground is to see my sin in all its ugliness. To see what it is that really is hurting me. It also is to feel the hurt I'm causing those around me. Even more so, it's to sense the pain that I'm bringing to the heart of God. 
It's learning to see my sin as God sees it. This is the work of repentance. When Hosea tells us to break up the fallow ground, he's saying it's time for us to get serious about sin. And then verse 13, you have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way in the multitude of your mighty men. You know, trusting in your own way is the opposite of repentance. To repent is to turn to God. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered as Shalman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Beth Arbel means house of God's ambush. We're not certain, but at some point, perhaps the Syrian general Shalmanazir may have launched a surprise attack and slaughtered some Israeli troops on or near the Arbel there in Galilee. The Arbel is one of my favorite places in all of Israel. It's the mountain on the southwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It overlooks, it kind of hangs out and juts out over the lake. There are are all kinds of caves in the face of the mountain, which would have been a place where a possible ambush could have taken place. I believe this was the place where Jesus would often escape to pray. It may have been the perfect place for the ambush mission mentioned here. The chapter closes. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. I mean, this could have been written the night before, maybe that morning. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off. The armies of Israel will be ambushed and its king utterly destroyed. You hear these judgments and you think, oh, there's no hope. God doesn't love us. But then you look and you see who the man is who's pronouncing these judgments. It's Hosea. Wait a minute. He knows about forgiveness. Wait a minute. Hosea, he's done what I could never fathom doing. He's taken back a prostitute. He's forgiven a prostitute. He's made her his wife again. Wait a minute. When I read these judgments, let me make sure I'm reading them from that heart. That Yes, God is angry with our sin. Yes, God demands that we break up the fallow ground. But none of us have been given up on by God. God loves all of us. And He wants us to repent so He can forgive us and He can restore us. Father, we thank You.